0: Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. All right, here's a joke. Why did the hipster
1: burn his tongue?
2: Ooh, why did the hipster burn his tongue?
1: He drank his herbal tea before it was cool.
3: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner
0: Party Download, an hour of food, culture and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Daniel Post Senning, great-great-grandchild of Etiquette Dwayne, Emily Post. Right. He's not a hipster. He and his cousin Lizzie will be back later to proffer advice, but before that, music legend Tony Bennett stops by to play travel agent.
4: I adore San Francisco. It's one of the best things that ever happened to America.
0: Sorry, Oakland. Also on deck, Indie rocker Kurt
3: Vile is here with a party playlist, comedian and perennial guest star Fred Stoller tells a tale, and David Felix Sutcliffe tells us about Terror, his new documentary about an FBI
0: informant. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines.
5: Republicans will choose their nominee to succeed John Boehner. New
6: guidelines from the World Health Organization call for a change in treating HIV. The
7: Nobel Prize for Literature went to a journalist, Svetlana Alekseyevich.
0: Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Jody Avergan. He is host of the weekly podcast, What's the Point? for 538, That's Nate Silver's data journalism site. Jody, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend?
8: I'm going to talk about a story that a colleague of mine, Leah Libresco, did in which she found that the musical Hamilton is the fastest-paced musical of all time. Wow. Words per minute, Hamilton just kind of blows every other musical out of the water. Wow, and Hamilton is the hottest ticket in town, a very popular... Uh, musical do you think it's because it's value people are getting more for their dollar <laughs> so. I, I haven't seen that as an advertising point but maybe so but no I mean the obvious reason is because it's a rap based musical and so there's more words per minute in there uh, the creator Limon Miranda has talked about this fact that you can cram more information in oh. to that genre hamilton has 144 words per minute uh Ooh. for context spring awakening has 77 the phantom of the opera has 68 and all the way at the bottom <laughs> the pirates of penzance has 58 words per minute. so hamilton is fast and to prove that uh, i brought a clip of hamilton take a listen hamilton.
0: So you're going to have to use them eventually What's he going to do in the bench? I mean No one has my resilience Or matches
6: my practical tactical brilliance You want to fight for your land back I need my right-hand man back
8: Yes <laughs> Oh, sorry, that was from Oklahoma I bought the wrong clip <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry It is not somewhere
3: from West Side Story, let's right. say
8: So my favorite way to think about this math Was that if Hamilton was sung at the pace of Pirates of Penzance <laughs> It would take five <laughs> hours and 55 minutes To get through all of those words Now we
3: know Thank you <laughs> For resolving that long simmering problem for us. Jody, thanks for the small talk. You got it.
0: And now, time for cocktails.
3: This is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened in history and then give you a fitting drink to serve with it.
0: It's our never imitated
3: history lesson with booze. That's right. First, the history part. This past week in 1949, a man was born who helped revolutionize space exploration, the military,
0: and pool parties. Michelle Philippi tells the tale.
5: Inventor Lonnie Johnson will probably be remembered for the least important thing he ever made. First, some background. Born in Mobile, Alabama, Lonnie took a quick interest in mechanics and science. The kind of kid who set the family kitchen on fire when he tried to whip up a batch of homemade rocket fuel. Still, as an African-American growing up in the segregated South, Lonnie wasn't encouraged to achieve much. But he did anyway, earning a master's in nuclear engineering. He went on to design circuitry for NASA's Galileo mission to Jupiter, and also worked on a little Air Force project called the Stealth Bomber. But it was a humbler gadget that accidentally made Lonnie a fortune a heat pump he designed in his spare time that used water instead of Freon. One day, testing a prototype in his bathroom, the gizmo shot a powerful stream of water into the tub. His first thought, quote, this would make a great squirt gun. He called it the Power Drencher. The name didn't stick, but the toy did renamed the super soaker it hit stores in 1989 and has since racked up around two billion dollars in sales
9: the super soaker 100
5: it's a water gun of a higher caliber with the proceeds lonnie formed his own company they're now working on an engine that'd create solar power as efficiently as coal power thereby saving the planet now, if it also lets you drench your little brother from 60 feet away, they might be onto something.
3: All right, so that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. We are speaking with Emmy Binshot. She is bartender at Noble South, a bar in Mobile, Alabama, the birthplace of the great Lonnie Johnson. And, Emmy, you heard the history. What story does that inspire you to make?
10: Well, I kind of wanted to do a big Southern spin off of a Long Island iced tea. Okay. Um, How come that? Well, to me, a super soaker speaks of excess. <laughs> <laughs> and whenever someone wants to, you know, feel the effects of alcohol fairly quickly, <laughs> they usually order a Long Island iced tea.
3: <laughs> it's like a super soaker of booze. Exactly. Never think of so... that drink the same way again. <laughs> All right, so uh, I'd ask you to list what's in a Long Island iced tea, but I think it's basically everything on the liquor shelf. So let's just see what you did with it. What does your drink have?
10: So predominantly Midori. I put 27 Springs vodka and gin. That's an Alabama label. Uh Then I put yellow chartreuse in there instead of tequila to give it a little bit of an edge.
3: This is still proving to be a very high-powered drink. You were correct.
10: Yes, you're going to feel it. So you're going to mix that with some muddled cucumber. Oh, fresh lime, a little bit of simple syrup, Shake it really well, Okay. pour it over fresh ice in a pint glass, and top it with sparkling water.
3: Man. So if you're pouring this into a pint glass, in a way, it almost looks like the pill-shaped barrel that sits on top of the super soaker. Is that right? That's
10: what I was going for, was actually something big. and
3: And it has a lot of volume.
10: Exactly.
3: (laughs) One thing, though, I was kind of hoping that you would do something to represent the rocket fuel that he made as a kid.
10: That's funny. I actually thought about doing a crushed pop rock rim. I thought that would be kind of fun.
3: So it has a little blasting cap effect. (laughs) Another thing, could you actually rig a bar gun so that it could fire this into a customer's mouth? That would be awesome. Is that even possible?
10: Probably not, but it's worth a shot.
3: And Brendan Lonnie Johnson's company now has over a hundred patents. Mm. I found out, including this is according to Biography.com. Okay, uh, patents for a ceramic battery and hair rollers that set without heat, but also a diaper that plays a nursery rhyme when soiled,
2: <laughs> which
0: apparently didn't sell well. <laughs> was that Lonnie? also called the Super Soaker? <laughs> it, it was. All right. Don't no, well, mess met- with success. That's right folks. You'll find our recipes online at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now the soundtrack in which a great
3: musician DJs your dinner party.
0: And today it's Kurt Vile. He co-founded the band The War on Drugs, then launched a solo career so successful that his hometown of Philadelphia declared August 28th Kurt Vile Day. (laughs) Amazing. Grantland calls him one of the most talented rockers of his generation. His new album called Believe I'm Going Down is out now. Here's Kurt with a playlist.
9: Hey, what's up? This is Kurt Vile, and this is my dinner party soundtrack. The first track I would play is a Lee Hazelwood duet called Hey Cowboy. Hey, cowboy, where'd you get the clothes? Nina Lizel sings along with him. She's a Swede, I think. And uh, my daughter actually always repeats that Land of the Midnight sun line.
4: What you do in the land of the sun? You better run. You just adore.
9: And uh, Leah Hazelwood has that pillowy texture mixed with like country and blues.
8: I
4: may not look right, but I sure do feel fine. You hang around me and I'll undo your mind.
9: I never like uh, consciously drew from Lee Hazelwood, but I do remember people compared me, especially my final EP, which, for instance, there's a song on there called Space Forklift, and everybody said it sounded like Lee Hazelwood. And I was like, I like Lee Hazelwood, but I never really thought it sounded like that. I thought it more so sounded like, you know, being in outer space on a forklift. But that's, you know, to each their own, they got to compare it with something. But I'm pretty sure Lee Hazelwood never drove a forklift. All right. The next track, Here Come the Honeyman, is an instrumental by Miles Davis. This song in particular is a Jill Evans' conducted piece. Miles is the lead trumpet player, but there's a whole orchestra. I use this a lot in mixtapes actually. It's like the perfect segue. There's a cycling uh, horn harmony. Real soothing. It's like, like, this song could be sort of a gear shift in your party where it just floats in and you can just float along with it. So the next song, is not very well-known but it's an incredible uh, sort of folk pop track unspotted clothes by luke roberts luke roberts has great pop sensibility and a simple songwriting acoustic country twang i think he's from uh... nashville and uh... i think originally thurston moore put this record out and then thrill jockey reissued it but either way it's a crime that so far you know nobody really pushed this record enough
11: I'm gonna see his face I'm
4: gonna wear a robe
9: the lyrics can be funny but they're really heartfelt he's like I'm gonna see his face I'm gonna wear a robe I'm on a boat and if I only float
0: and if I
9: just singing about unspotted clothes. I guess it's like his dream of the way heaven is or something, Uh, completely unspotted uh, white sneakers and clothing. It's strange, but beautiful, isn't it? I'm going to wrap things down with I'm an Outlaw, one of my own songs which I like to do every night before I go to bed, is listen to one of my songs. Just kidding. It has the drum machine, but it's got folk instruments and stuff. You know, because I don't want to like, you know, it's it's getting late. Everybody's got to go to bed. Everybody's got to come down. But I'll, I'll be up for a while. Yeah.
0: Dinner Party soundtrack from Kurt Vile. He's on tour now in support of his album, Believe I'm Going Down. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but stick around. In a second, the legendary
3: Tony Bennett tells me to respect my elders when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano.
0: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, comedian Fred Stoller details his long struggle to send someone a videotape. <laughs> but first, it's time to meet our guests of honor. That's right, and this week it's Tony
3: Bennett and Bill Charlap. Bill is one of the top jazz pianists and band leaders in America. He's put out two Grammy-nominated albums. And as for Tony, how's this for a rundown? Almost 70 years as a musician, over 70 albums, 18 Grammys, couple of Emmys, a Kennedy Center honoree, and one of the greatest singers ever of American jazz and pop standards. No Oscar, though. Yes, he's a failure. Mm -hmm. With Bill, he just released Silver Lining, an album of songs by the great composer Jerome Kern. And when the three of us spoke, I first asked Tony why he wanted to devote a whole record to Kern.
4: Well, he was the composer that inspired all the other composers at a great moment in American music when they all wrote one great song after another for theater and for early talking films. And Those songs really will last forever, and it's the biggest calling card for any American in any other foreign country. They adore American songs.
6: Like Tony says, Jerome Kern is the angel at the top of the tree for all the great (laughs) popular writers. In fact, he was born around 1885. Now Gershwin and... Richard Rodgers were born right at the turn of the century, so he was kind of their father figure. Uh And he was really the first to really write American music. It didn't sound like light opera. It's direct. It's not being fussy. It's the way that we speak. Well, that's that's a great excuse to get a song in here. Which of
3: these tunes, when you hatched the idea for this album, was the first song that you knew you had to do?
6: Perhaps it was All the Things You Are. All right, let's hear it. You are the promised kiss of
4: springtime That makes the lonely winter seem long You are the breathless hush of evening That trembles On the brink of a lovely song
3: So why that song, Tony? Why was that important for you to record?
4: Well, any time I've ever met a great jazz musician, I found out through the years that they were all playing that one song more than any other song. It's really their favorite song to improvise on. Why do you think that is? And I, I never get tired of it. No matter whenever I hear it, I
6: just adore it, the way that song was written. It's a perfect melding of lyrics and melody. The lyrics just drip off the melody. Okay. Oscar Hammerstein yeah. and Jerome Kern. I also very much appreciate how spare and quiet your treatment of it is. Uh,
3: that's typical of all the songs on this record. And I feel like something that a lot of times keeps younger audiences from appreciating this kind of music is that it can be the opposite you know it's kind of overproduced it can be syrupy sounding both of you to what extent do you think
6: about the audience either satisfying your longtime fans or reaching out to new audiences you're always satisfying yourself first and by doing that you satisfy your audience but it's very important also to communicate We want to tell a story to the audience. So communication is vital, but uh, that comes naturally when you're being honest with who you are.
4: All I've ever tried to do is make people feel good (laughs) because press and television, they always kind of bring out something morbid that happened today. (laughs) And I just try to make everybody enjoy themselves and walk out saying, boy, I really had fun. I really enjoyed that tonight. If I could do that, I feel successful about what I'm doing.
3: Although there was a, a long period in the '60s and '70s where your style of music was out of fashion, I know your label made you do an album of, <laughs> of covers of rock tunes, and which I understand well, made you, you literally. Know,
4: when you have to compete, when you have to compete with uh, four chords and three of them are wrong, <laughs> you know you just have to. Be patient until it goes away somehow.
3: (laughs) I mean, the way that I've heard this described is that recording rock for you made you literally physically sick. (laughs) Well, I didn't do
4: it. Funny enough, I just left uh, Columbia for half a second. I I moved to England to get away from it. Oh, my God. For about three years and just did my own thing with the greatest orchestrator of all time, Robert Fon. And I made uh, four albums with them, and and it all paid off. Many years later, those recordings and films are starting to sell for me.
3: Uh, Since we're talking about your great work of the 60s, I, I hope you don't mind if I mention another. This would be your Carnegie Hall performance in 1962, which I know your fans consider one of the great moments of your career. Uh, Carnegie Hall only started allowing pop concerts the previous year, so you apparently pulled out all the stops. I looked it up. You performed 44 songs that night. Huge range of styles. It lasted hours. What do you remember of that performance?
4: Well, Carnegie Hall is some of the greatest performances that ever happened, happened in Carnegie Hall. And it was a be- the biggest moment of my life as a young artist. And I remember with Ralph Sharon who accompanied me, we were playing in Chicago and spent day after day trying to put the shows together. And uh, I loved it. And I love the way it sounded. But what I found out a few years later is that I did too many songs at one night. (laughs) It's too much for the audience, you know. I I finally learned what to leave out, not what to put in.
3: You kind of burn them out by the end of the evening. They're like, enough artistry, please. Well,
6: I don't know. That's still a pretty classic performance, and every song is great. But um, less is more. Uh, Here's our
3: last couple of questions that we ask to everyone on the show. And the first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party... What question should we not ask you?
4: I haven't got an answer for that. I wouldn't know <laughs> what to say. I, I would think I'd probably walk away.
3: <laughs> I would think I would think it would be could you sing I left my heart in San Francisco?
4: What's wrong with that? That's the greatest song that ever happened to me. You're not I tired love the of the city. Yet? I, I adore San Francisco, the whole city. It's beautiful. Of course, one of the best things that ever happened to America. I'm sure San Francisco is happy to hear it, but you're not. You're not at all tired tired of of singing that. I never get tired of singing that. You might get tired of listening to it, (laughs) but. No, it doesn't bother me at all. I love it.
3: All right. Get ready for a whole bunch of people now to ask you to sing it at the next party you go to.
4: No, they don't ask. They, they, at, at any party, no one else asks me to sing, and I, I, I don't sing at a party. Really? I just enjoy myself. Even if there's a piano there and someone
6: starts playing a tune? What if Bill starts starts well, the tune? it's all
4: according to who's playing the piano and, <laughs> and what people are there at that night.
6: The main thing I don't want to be asked is if I'm going to be having anything that's gluten-free. <laughs> <laughs> You're a fan of the gluten, are you? I am. I have as much gluten as possible. All right. Let's move on to our final question, which
3: is, tell us something we don't know. And this can be about yourself or or any piece of trivia. Maybe music. Actually, my my father, right before I did this interview, he, by the way, is a huge fan of both of you to an almost frightening degree. He said, uh, Tony, his favorite performance of yours is the song This Funny World by Rogers and Hart which I'm told is, is a pretty unusual tune. This anything? funny
4: world makes fun of the things that you care for. <laughs> yes. your, your father has great taste. Believe me, listen to him instead of rock and roll. <laughs> if you are broke, you shouldn't mind. It's all a joke for you a fine. This funny world is making fun of you.
3: Not really something we didn't know that I should listen to my dad, but there it is. Tony Bennett with Bill Charlap. Their lovely new album of songs by Jerome Kern is called Silver Lining.
0: And just ingratiate ourselves even more to our families today. We've got a list of both of our dad's favorite Tony Bennett tunes on our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org.
8: eavesdrop.
0: If you've ever watched TV, chances are you've seen comedian Fred Stoller in action. The title of his memoir says it all. It's called Maybe We'll Have You Back, The Life of a
12: Perennial TV Guest Star. Today, we overhear him tell a tale. I'm Fred Stoller, and here's a true story that's in the book. Years ago, before the internet, actors, we'd have these demo tapes. VHS, remember those? So the tape had examples of roles I've been on. It had me being the annoying cousin on Everybody Loves Raymond, me on Seinfeld when I was Elaine's Bad Date. It had a lot of clips of me being the pathetic nebbish guy. I guess I'm a real good actor, I'm not like that. Okay, maybe I am, maybe it's not acting. So I paid some guy to do a new video demo reel thinking it's gonna change everything. So then I'm walking around the Beverly Connection, a mall. People think I'm nuts because I'm always walking, but I just like to get out of my house and have interactions. Maybe someone will recognize me. Maybe someone will say, I always had a crush on you, or hey, I'll put you in my movie. That's never happened. Until some people walked up to me, and it was Amy Heckerling, director of Fast Times at Richmond High, all the Look Who's Talking movies, Clueless. And her daughter had just seen me on Seinfeld. So then I thought, hey, I have a new demo tape. Could I get it to you? She goes, send it to my assistant. I went home so excited. A big director's going to see my revised demo tape. I, I put it in its envelope with the padding and everything. I sealed the envelope. But then this OCD in me where I had to rip it up again because I was all neurotic. Did I write by accident, Amy Heckling, all your movies stink? Or that maybe it wasn't a demo tape. Maybe I put in a porno tape by accident. Even though I didn't own a porno tape, I had to reassure myself. So I wasted another two bucks, ripping open the envelope, seeing it is the demo thing. And then I put the demo thing back in another envelope, very slowly saying, Fred, do you see? This is the tape. This is a nice cover letter. We're not gonna open this envelope again. So I take my demo tape to the post office. The post office lady stamps it first class. So I'm freaking out. You know, is Amy Heckling gonna open it up and see it in pieces and everything? And think the clerk, not only did she stamp it, she threw it in the bin across the room. Why did it crack? Did the little bubble things I like to pop, did you protect it? because this is my one shot. So I had to reassure myself that it wouldn't be in pieces. So I ran home, took another one of those, like, $2 envelopes, sealed another demo tape, and tried to recreate what it went through. So I took my hand and I smashed it down on the envelope, pretending my fist was the first class stamp, and then, I tossed it from my kitchen table to the couch, thinking that's what it would be like when it went in the bin. Then I pretended that it was shaking in the truck from Los Angeles to Beverly Hills ride. So I kind of roared and pretending it's driving and shaking it a little bit. And then I opened it. Oh, it was all intact. Turned out she got it. She said it's funny. And nothing happened from sending Amy Heckling my demo reel, but that's better than if she opened it so it was in little pieces. Comedian Fred
0: Stoller, his memoir, Maybe We'll Have You Back, The Life of a Perennial TV Guest Star, just came out in paperback, and you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media.
3: And now the main course—the part of the show where we talk about food.
0: Yes, and this week I talked with self-professed food nerd Kenji Lopez Alt about his new book, *The Food Lab: Better Home Cooking Through Science*. I'm
3: hoping it involved lasers. No, nope, just
0: just a digital thermometer. Boo. Sorry. Lasers no, only. No, no Star Wars aprons. Basically, it. it's a thousand-page book on every food in the world and how most people are cooking them
7: wrong. It sounds humbling enough. Just.
0: Barry. To start, I asked Kenji where he got his food nerd bona fides.
7: Chief among my uh, my qualifications are that from the age of uh, maybe 4 to 10 years old, I woke up every morning at 6 a.m. to watch Mr. Wizard on TV. Yeah. I literally learned every scientific concept from him.
0: Well, other nerd things you mentioned in the book are, you know, when you were stuck writing this book, you would look to Monty Python <laughs> or science fiction to get inspired to keep going. Y- yeah. My
7: humor tends to the nerdy, I think.
0: So that's the funny part about being a nerd but you know you you also mean nerd you take a scientific approach to things at one point you call cooking, quote, a scientific engineering problem in which the inputs are raw ingredients and technique and the outputs
7: are deliciously edible results. Yeah, I worked in biology labs for um, a number of years when I was in high school and in college. And, you know, the work that I do in the kitchen is not all that different from the work you do in a biology lab. You know, you start with a bunch of ingredients, you you perform a certain set of processes on them, and then you end up with a result. You know, the difference is that cooking is, A, generally much faster and B, a lot better tasting.
0: <laughs> than lab rats?
7: Yes. (laughs) or gel electrophoresis plates, you know, things like that.
0: At another point you talk about, you know, one of the problems with cooking is that people view it as a craft, not a practice. But I I have Mm -hmm. to admit, I bristled a little bit because part of the reason I love the kitchen is because it's not precise. It's a little bit of this, a pinch of that. Have you gotten that reaction from other folks that you're maybe ruining the magic by really
7: (laughs) distilling things down to these scientific principles? I do get that, and I've cooked that same way myself. But the point is that understanding the basic techniques and scientific background of cooking, um, that actually helps you to improvise more. Mm. By understanding things, it sort of frees you from having to follow recipes.
0: So one of the things you do is kind of give people the basic principles. You also end up correcting some misperceptions. Mm -hmm. One of them uh, embodied in the story of Harold McGee.
7: A great food writer. um, He wrote On Food and Cooking, which is sort of the food science bible. The, the The thing you're mentioning is the idea that searing uh, meat seals in juices, which is something that, was proposed, I think, in the 19th or 18th century. um, And it was believed for a long time, but since then it's been debunked, including by Harold McGee about 20 years ago. But for some reason, it's one of those things that still seems to stick in people's heads. And you see chefs say it all the time. You see people on TV say it all the time that uh, searing meat will seal in the juices.
0: And for people who don't know, so when you say searing, you just mean getting a raw steak. And the idea was that you, and I I heard this growing up too, Mm -hmm. you cook it quickly on both sides and then you start to cook it for a longer period of time. And the idea is it would keep the moisture
7: inside the piece. Of meat. Exactly. Yeah. I think the idea is that you would sort of cauterize the surfaces so that the moisture inside the meat can't escape. Yeah. But it's pretty easy to disprove, actually. You take two identical steaks, one of them cook the traditional way, so sear it really hard in a skillet and then transfer it to an oven to finish cooking a little more gently. The second steak, do the reverse process, start it in the oven and then finish it by searing it. Um, and you'll find that the one that you sear at the end uh, actually uh, retains more moisture and comes out more tender than the one that you did the traditional way.
0: I think your most popular thing you
7: kind of corrected people on was eggs. Can you tell us your hard-boiled egg method? The number one question I had when I was doing hard-boiled eggs was what makes the peel stick to the eggs? sometimes. You know, sometimes you peel it and it comes off in one piece, sometimes you peel it and it creates, you know, it sticks and and the white egg white is fused to the shell. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, that's a big issue, um, particularly because I used to have to make deviled eggs all the time uh, in a restaurant I worked at and mm-hmm. I would always end up at least doubling the number of eggs I cooked knowing that a bunch of them were gonna end up ugly. Um, yes. we, we had a lot of <laughs> they... egg salad for a family meal those days. But um, yeah. what I found after testing was that the number one thing that makes a difference is the temperature of the water when you lower the eggs into it. So some people recommend putting your eggs in cold water uh, and then bringing that to a boil on the stovetop. That is the way that you're going to get your eggs to stick the most. Um, it's much mm. better to lower the eggs into hot water. Good
0: riddance, ugly eggs. <laughs> so uh, what was something that really
7: surprised you in the lab? One of the big ones is, is pasta. I was always taught that you have to use a very large volume of water for the amount of pasta you're cooking. And there's a couple of reasons given for this. You know, One of them is that uh, more water helps the pasta stick less, um, and the other one is that with a larger volume of water, when you add the pasta to it, the temperature of that water drops less, uh, and therefore it returns to a boil faster, so you're cooking the pasta faster. But if you actually test it side by side, get yourself a gallon of water boiling in a big pot and a quart of water boiling in a smaller pot um, on the same strength burner. Add the same amount of pasta to both pots and watch them, and you'll find that the smaller pot actually returns to a boil faster than the larger pot does. So are there any uh, mysteries you haven't solved? I've I've been trying to do homemade uh, chicken McNugget right now. I I have a theory that some
0: things are already done perfectly by other people. Oh, I totally agree. And so if you really want a perfect chicken
7: nugget, get in your car and drive 10 minutes away and buy nuggets. (laughs) No, but on the other hand, like, I think, you know, recreating fast food at home is just kind of a fun sort of little science experiment. Spoken like a true nerd.
0: And, Rico, if Kenji ever makes a perfect McGriddle at home, Uh. I will volunteer to wash his dishes for a thousand hours. (laughs) Although something tells me
3: he has a pretty state-of-the-art washing machine.
0: Well, then I'll press start for him a whole bunch.
3: All right. Uh, (laughs) Folks... Coming up, a new old song from suburban lawns, advice from the descendants of etiquette royalty, and a window into the war on terror when The Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to The
0: Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of Public Radio. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll hear from director David Felix Sutcliffe on his new film, Terror, in which he filmed an active FBI counterterrorism sting operation. But before we get to the macro-level geopolitical behavior, it's time to learn about micro-level interpersonal
3: behavior. A.K.A. our weekly etiquette lesson. That's right. Each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week are Lizzie Post and Daniel Post sending... They are regular contributors to our show. They are the great-great-grandchildren of Emily Post and co-authors of Emily Post's Etiquette, the 18th edition. They also host the podcast Awesome Etiquette.
0: Lizzie, Dan, welcome. Hey! Gentlemen, it is an honor and a privilege.
3: Thank you for for having
2: us.
0: Is it a privilege at this point? You're on all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So Lizzie, uh, we hear that you recently went on vacation in Italy, and so we want to know what's the most polite way to come back from a trip and not make everyone around you jealous. Yeah. Especially if someone asks you about it. Yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. What's the what's the most polite way to come back from a trip? I think in good spirits that's the polite etiquette answer the other answer is screw it make them all jealous <laughs> just...
1: <laughs> you, this is
2: your chance I have to listen to other people go to the Bahamas and the Caribbean yeah. and Mexico and Bali. Yeah, I, I hear
0: what you're saying Lizzie because people I think especially in America we get we're nervous about taking vacation and if you just come back and make people jealous and tell them how good it was then everyone will maybe take vacation ah. like, yeah. it, I deserve it too so maybe you're doing them a service it's good for society but we don't want to hear any more about it Lizzie so we'll turn to our <laughs> first question <laughs> and it comes from Jackie in Montreal, Canada, and Jackie writes, I'm 10 weeks pregnant. My husband and I want to keep the news a secret, but people are nosy and say stuff like, I notice you're not drinking, and are you guys still going to the fertility clinic, etc.? How can I politely say, back off and mind your own business?
2: Mm. Pardon me, but I do get a little bit of a kick out of this because clearly if someone's asking about your fertility treatments, you've been sharing Mm -hmm. about your fertility treatments. Mm. And now that you have news that you wanna keep secret, you want people to stop automatically to, to know that they shouldn't be asking you yeah, that anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that it's one of those where you just say, oh, you know, I just haven't been feeling like drinking lately, but thanks. Or, you know, <laughs> we, we just decided not to think about it so much. So I want to hear about how your garden's going this mm. fall What or about le- or
3: Leave a woman a little mystery.
2: <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well,
3: is it OK to say like, hey, I actually I maybe have overshared in the past. I'm not really I don't want to talk about it.
2: I think that sounds awesome. OK, I think right there. Say that. That's a great That's line. A good... You know, I've overshared or We've just talked about it too much. I'm I'm trying to get away from the subject right yeah. now.
0: Okay. And you're like, and pass the cranberry juice.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
0: wink. Wink.
3: All right. There you go, Jackie, in Montreal. Here's something from Jason in Orinda, California. Jason writes, on my neighborhood streets, people run on the side facing oncoming cars. So the left mm. side. But on the running mm-hmm. trail nearby, opinion seems to be split 50-50 as to whether to run on the right or the left. Is there a correct side? And if there isn't, how do you know who moves for whom?
2: I um I say for the most part, you want to stick to the right just because that is the generally the accepted on on a path like he's talking about. But I also think that people who run on the left, they do it for a reason. If you run a lot on the same path, oftentimes one leg will actually be on a lower side of the path if there's any kind of oh. angle to it our bike path here in Burlington, it's higher in the middle than it is down on the side. So if I'm always running the same direction on the same side, I Mm. really screw up my knees. So sometimes Mm. you need to run that opposite direction to straighten things out. But if you're the person doing that, Move over when the people running on the right, right side are coming Know that you.
0: you're not doing the usual. Exactly. Lizzie, with that technical inside information at the end there about the, the favoring a certain leg, you really just nipped in the bud my kind of, gosh darn it, it's the right side. We're yeah. in America. Ha-ha! But it's still a pain when people are running on the wrong side. It is. It's you.
2: still a pain in the neck. I'm it sorry, Brendan,
0: yeah. but you're going to have to show some sympathy for somebody. All right. <laughs> I'm going to attempt to. All right. Here's something
3: from Ron in Broomall, Pennsylvania. Ron writes, My friend raised her nephew, who is now 21 years old. I know them both very well. I recently came across a personal ad online that was posted by the nephew. He posted a photo, so I know it was him. It was explicit in content and eyebrow-raising coming from someone his age and knowing him personally. My question is, should I tell my friend, who is his aunt... Should I contact the nephew and offer advice, or should I let this 21-year-old
0: alone? Interesting question. That is, that's kind of a serious etiquette question. <laughs> yeah, it
2: certainly so, is. That is a serious etiquette. Um,
0: it's. it's a very special episode of Dinner Party <laughs> Download. <laughs> <Etiquette>. <laughs>
1: yes. um, it, it, it seems like a very personal topic, but yet its it's been encountered in a very public way. Yeah. Um, and the person who put this information out there is an adult. They're 21 years old, so there's no reason you can't talk to them about it if and you if you feel you should or if you feel compelled to do so.
2: And they're putting it out there publicly. So they mm-hmm. are aware, I'm hoping they're aware of the fact that truly, anyway, even the aunt you know who raised him could come across it's, that, depending but
3: on... But as long as that's the yeah. topic of conversation, are you sure you want people to publicly stumble across this? Because otherwise, a 21-year-old is allowed to post explicit things online, mm-hmm. whether we like it or not. Yeah, right? So you We're want to approach same. them like an
1: adult and with some respect, recognizing that you're treading into territory
0: that that's very personal
1: mm-hmm. to them.
2: And I don't think you need to go to the, the aunt about it. Yeah. I think you deal with the person directly. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, because in this instance, it's eyebrow raising. It doesn't seem like he's there's harm that could come from him, maybe. Yeah. Safety trumps etiquette. But also it's important to keep
1: in mind different people have different ideas exactly. about what is harm. Yeah. And sometimes there's a, a
0: generational difference in terms of that perspective also and also Ron has to be prepared to answer why he saw that ad that's <laughs> yeah, sorry to put that out there but
3: we're good gonna... for that conversation <laughs> no, it's a good, Ron it's a good thing all right, right. <laughs> here's something from Amy in Silver Spring Maryland Amy writes I live and work near Washington DC and frequently attend functions where I'm meeting new people. Is there a way to inquire about someone's line of work in a way that conveys my genuine interest and doesn't just come off as a way to size them up? Oh, please Mm. tell us how to do this, Lizzie.
0: Yeah.
2: What?
1: How, yeah, I how, know. Did, how did I all of a sudden become the one to do this? You're just back from Europe, where it's not so um, usual oh, to ask someone what they say. do. It, it, it's yeah. something that happens all the time here in the States. People ask each other very early on in a relationship or first encounter what, what the other do you person's do? occupation is. And, and, some people view it as a boorish question. Some people definitely think that it's uninspired. <laughs> this is one of Dan's favorite
2: points when it comes to this. Yeah. I love saying. But in Europe, it's considered in a, not as appropriate. Yeah. But I, truthfully, yeah, if you work in the kind of town where everybody's always trying to use everybody else to get up on the next you know, step of the ladder, I think that you— need to just recognize that that's the truth of it. And if you want to show genuine interest, be the person who doesn't then try to say, oh, so how could we get together and make this work for this benefit? You know, actually just be interested in them and don't ask anything of them. And that is a good mm. way to start building that rapport with mm. someone. That no, no, they're just genuinely interested.
0: Yeah, because mm. it can be a shortcut to getting having a good conversation. Absolutely, when right? It like, do do? opens up a topic. It's interesting. I've Rico and I've been doing this for years. I have no idea what Rico does. I've never asked him because <laughs> yeah. I'm not rude.
3: Yeah, right. It's not clear day to day what it is that I'm doing, frankly, <laughs> even to myself.
0: That's right. Lizzie and Dan, I don't want to know what you guys do either, but thanks so much uh, for telling our audience how to behave.
2: Oh, thank you, guys. It's always so much fun. You're
1: most
0: welcome. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning, great, great grandchildren of the Empress of Etiquette Emily Post, hosts of the podcast Awesome Etiquette, and who are you?
3: I'm Rico Galliano. I co-host the show. Oh, really? That's fascinating. Yeah, which means I say stuff like, listeners... If you want your etiquette question answered, send it to us via our website. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. All right, and now, as promised, we pivot to a far darker topic, a film that takes a very inside look at the war on terror.
0: Yes, right now most of us are probably aware whole departments of the government are trying to prevent terrorist acts, but how exactly are they going about it and how effective are they really? The new documentary Terror gives a rare glimpse into the world of assessing terror threats. It's about Said Torres, an informant for the FBI. Without telling his bosses, he invited filmmakers David Felix Sutcliffe and Lyric Cabral to film him as he went undercover to befriend a suspected jihadist. And then things really got interesting. When I met with David, I first asked him to explain Said's job.
11: The word informant, in particularly in the way that, you know, Saeed works and the way that the FBI has used informants and people like Saeed, is pretty misleading. Informant, you think, oh, someone provides information. They are part of some sort of network, criminal network, and they are offering uh, the FBI or law enforcement, a, you know, a door into that, an entryway. Uh, but really what Saeed has done in what other informants are doing, there's 15,000 informants right now, uh, a lot of them are being used as provocateurs. You know, the informant's job is to go set people up. You know, there are provocateurs who are being sent into Muslim communities to kind of entrap young men, young Muslim men who are angry at the government Mm. and have expressed those grievances and the FBI says, this person is a person of interest, let's see what we can get him to do. You use the word
0: entrap, which is a legal term, which is Mm -hmm. illegal, right, to technically entrap people. Um, The government would call it preventive investigations, is that correct? Mm -hmm. So Saeed invites you along on one of these investigations. The person of interest he is looking for is Khalifa al-Akili, who's this white Protestant kid who converted to Islam. He has a criminal record. He's publicly pro-Taliban, and the FBI feared he was either
11: radicalized already or about to be. Can you
0: explain how he became a person of interest?
11: Yeah, we have, we have no way of knowing what it was that first kind of tipped the FBI off, why they began investigating Khalifa. However you look at Khalifa, you look at the statements he makes online, the way he dresses, and it's not hard to understand why they begin looking at him. And I think that's where we kind of get into the gray zone. We have people who are definitely, you know, worthy of investigation, you know, someone who's going online and saying praise Osama bin Laden, I love the Taliban, you know, that's someone you want to look at and what what where do their allegiances lie and what what are what are their aspirations. Um, unfortunately, in Khalifa's case, you know, they had been investigating him for seven years hmm. and as early as I believe like 2005, you know, FBI informants were were approaching him trying to, you know, assess his thoughts on jihad and violence and political issues and he never took the bait in these agents for whatever reason that was, you know, they were unsatisfied to kind of let him keep on getting by with making these offensive, kind of radical fiery statements online and they pushed and they pushed hard. You know, we caught the tail end of that.
0: How did Said try to find out m- more about him? Can you talk a
11: little bit about his methods of investigation? Yeah, I mean, in this particular case, Said was pretty critical of the Pittsburgh agents and he was constantly criticizing the FBI for being basically a bunch of bumbling yokels who didn't know what they were doing. They didn't have a cover for him. Uh, he said, you know, normally I could have come in as a businessman, but they didn't have any sort of businessman cover for me. so." I'm using what I have, which is, you know, Saeed had search and rescue credentials and he had a dog. So he was telling Khalifa, like, I work for the search and rescue, uh, Red Cross and but that didn't really open up many opportunities to kind of then segue into a conversation about jihad or about yeah. traveling to Pakistan. And so he was kind of stumbling around. So in terms of methods, there really weren't any. And it was just yeah. kind of catch-all, like, let's talk about Homeland. You like Homeland? Let's talk about <laughs> Homeland. Let's talk about camping. You get the sense that Saeed isn't this really professional kind of guy. And we know that because
0: he invited you along <laughs> to film him being an informant. How how did that happen?
11: Well, a lot of that came uh, because of Lyric, my co-director, her relationship with Saeed. You know, she had met Saeed in 2003. Not knowing that he was an FBI informant, he was just her downstairs neighbor in a brownstone in Harlem. Uh, And at the time, she was a journalism student at Columbia and thought this man was really interesting and started spending time with him, you know, talking about current events. She found out he was a Black Panther and was particularly fascinated by that. Uh, And then one day in 2005, he just disappeared. She came back to the brownstone. They had plans to hang out on a Saturday and this was a Thursday and his apartment was empty. There was no furniture. uh, There was nothing there. Uh, and then he called her and said, if anybody comes looking for me, don't tell them where I am. And she said, well, I don't, how could I tell them anything? I don't know anything about you. I don't know where you are. Uh, what's going on? And he said, you know, I, I can't tell you anything right now, but in a few months I'll call for you uh, and I can kind of tell you the whole story then. And that's what he did. You know, I think later on that summer, uh, she went to visit him where he was staying and he said, I've been working for the FBI since the early 90s and I want you to write a book about me. Was it legal for you guys to accompany Saeed, as he ingratiated himself with Khalifa. Well, the first thing we did as soon as he, you know, gave us the green light and said he would be willing to, you know, make a film, we reached out to the ACLU and said, "Are are we allowed to do this? Are we gonna Are we gonna get sent to jail?" And they said, "You know, this you're doing what journalists do, which is you provide transparency, uh, and so this is a really critical and legal act that you're doing. What you're doing is mm-hmm. justified. It's important." Yeah. So we felt secure and kind of moving forward at that point.
0: But then something wild happens, Khalifa. Mentions on Facebook that he thinks the FBI is following him, and your movie takes a wild turn. You then approach Khalifa. Now, this is the person that was being hunted, for lack of a better phrase. Uh, and you start filming him, and neither of them know you're filming the other. So we get the perspective of the hunter and
11: the prey. I've never seen anything like this. Certainly, you're in a position where you had to lie to both of them, right? Yeah, I mean, the whole it was kind of double cross. And, and it, was, it was there was there was, it was like a hall of mirrors. everyone is lying to everybody so a Khalifa, it turns
0: out after you you know start filming Khalifa he he can see through Saeed and the FBI he kind of lists all the mistakes made when you're seeing this guy so this not very sophisticated kid catch on to all these things that the FBI are trying to do. what does that say to you about this process?
11: You realize that we're spending one trillion dollars a year on national security programs. And we have no idea how that money is being spent. And if this film and these tactics reveal one sliver of the vast incompetence you know, and ineptitude, it's terrifying. Hmm. You know, Khalifa, it, it's, it's also tragic that, you know, even though he was able to figure out that he was being set up, it still didn't stop the government from arresting him and stop the government from arresting him on the day that he was scheduled to go to a press conference in DC. To criticize them for harassing him, mm-hmm. and you know they had they had they had their their backup card, and that backup card was a gun charge. You know they had a photograph of him on Facebook from a Facebook. You know that was a clear violation of his parole. Khalifa didn't realize it, uh, but yet they were able to use that to take him down.
0: David Felix Sutcliffe, he and journalist Lyric Cabral directed the new documentary Terror. Our interview only scratched the surface of what they uncovered. I encourage you to check it out. And you can do that starting now because that's the Dinner Party download
3: for this week, folks. Thanks for joining us. And by us, we also mean Jackson Musker, who produces our show, along with associate producer Nina Patak and associate digital producer Christina Lopez. Jeff Peters engineered the show. Larissa Anderson is our executive producer.
0: And hey, if you don't already, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave a nice review. It helps. Thank you. And now, before we we leave you it's time for one for the road a song to enjoy on your way to or returning from this week's dinner party suburban lawns were a post-punk
3: band from Long Beach California in the late 70s and early 80s they only released one celebrated album and a few weeks back the label Futurismo released it again here's a track from it called janitor bon appetit
0: Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and I'm sorry, who are you again? Dude, I'm Rico Galeano, your co-host. Oh, right, right. God.